The fleet was huge, and contained great fighting ships of many kinds, some resembling what John Dacre would have called 19th century tea clippers, some that looked like junks, some with a latine rig of Mediterranean craft, some that were very like Elizabethan caravels, sailing in their separate formations according to their province of origin, they symbolised the differences and the unity of mankind. I was proud of them. And welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. This episode, we continue our journey across the sea with Ericos and the forces of humanity on their mission to take Paphanal from the feared Eldrin menace. We've had another substantial gap between shows, this time around six weeks, but we're entering a period of productivity, with another show in the can in the shape of our final look at the duel in the skull with Tash. And shortly, Loz will be back in Derry and Tom's and we'll be doing a couple of things. First, we'll be visiting the world of Louis Manesh, as we finally get round to tackling Coram of the Scarlet Robe. Then, we'll take a trip down memory lane and revisit our experience of Mocock-inspired gaming and what we think those games got right and what they got wrong. For now, though, we're sticking with the Eternal Champion, the tale of John Dacre and his alter ego, the champion of mankind, Erikos. Erikos looms large in Mocock's pantheon, despite being the subject of a comparatively tiny number of books and stories. And there's a good reason why. He's the most self-aware of the aspects of the Eternal Champion, although this doesn't necessarily play that well in terms of making him an agreeable or relatable protagonist. Nevertheless, this book holds an integral position in Moorcock's oeuvre. So, let's get into it. Our table is booked, and our drinks are prepared. And we are back in Derry and Tom's roof garden and my co-host today once again is Phil for our second dive into the Eternal Champion. Hello Phil. Hi there. Hello. And uh, we've we've just cheated and we've already had one old fashioned but that wasn't really to our taste was it? No. That was Jim Beam single barrel. Bit stronger bit than too normal. strong, perhaps. Mm. Had to save it with a little bit of soda, but that did work in the end. So we've defaulted back to wild turkey rye, I believe. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. That actually tastes stronger. Does it? Yeah, but that's probably because I had soda in the last one. Yeah. It is, however, extraordinarily delicious. So we're on part two of the Eternal Champion. So I think we need something of a recap of uh, of where we were when we left off last time. So, um, in the first part, John Dacre wakes up in bed in the middle of the night and is being called to by people in his dreams. And to cut a very long story short, he finds out that he's been summoned to stand butt-naked and be given a giant sword by King Ragnos and his daughter Iolinda. 
and live the life of a champion of mankind in their war against the hounds of hell. Mm -hmm. Oh, my word. And uh, not only that, but, of course, he falls in love, sort of. We'll get to that. Love with a small L, with the king's beautiful daughter, Iolinda. And he leads an army over the sea to conquer the port of Paphanal, is the objective. And uh, along the way, he meets a few people. Grumpy Kerton. Mm-hmm. We like Kerton because he's shrewd and, uh, and a bit of a wise ass, And he gets right up Erikos' nose. Erikos is the name of the champion, of course, in this world. But he's also having multiple dreams about different identities. And we find out that, in fact, Erikos is an aspect of the Eternal Champion, which includes various other Moorcock favourites like Corum, Elric... Hawkmoon and a whole host of other names which vary from edition to edition (laughs) and we'll get back to that again shortly as well but of course last time around we commented that it was kind of like a male power fantasy this whole Ericos business and we did comment on what perhaps would be a female power fantasy so you were set some homework weren't you so have you done your homework? I have but this is purely from my point of view Mm -hmm. and I have to say, for my power fantasy, it would be Gino Carreno, the MMA mixed martial arts fighter. So your female power fantasy is kicking the fuck out of Ewan McGregor on a beach. Seriously, haywire. (laughs) If you've never seen it, oh my God. And she did her own stunts. Yeah. That woman is amazing. So Phil's female power fantasy is to be Gina Carano, which is... Um, a, a deep sleeper agent who who does she kick in in that movie Channing Tatum oh Channing Tatum um, she so kicks his ass <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah if, if everybody's listening and you haven't seen Hairwire with the Steven Soderbergh film with Gina Carano it is a very very good action film and she she completely leathers the living piss <laughs> out of numerous people and, makes, and looks extraordinarily convincing while doing it and makes me say go girl <laughs> all the way through it Right, okay. Which is why I'll make you go back to it. <laughs> okay, so, right. I, I now understand why we've watched it three or four times, <laughs> because that is your female power fantasy. She's amazing. Being an ass-kicking machine. Yeah. Yeah, well, fair play. You know, she is very, very good at it. And talented. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I think people will probably... Or people may know her from uh, being a villain in Deadpool as well. Of course. Deadpool movie. She got to kick some butt in that as well. Okay, cool. That's your female power fantasy. Right, so j- just for, for clarity of what we're doing and the additions that we're working with, you're reading from the Galanx Moorcock Collection edition from a few years ago. Um, I have been working from the Millennium edition of the Eternal Champion Omnibus from the early 90s, but to hand, we also have the gorgeous early 70s Mayflower Science Fantasy edition with the crazy cover with Nicole Kidman's Builder's Bum. And I've also got the Golanx collection of Elric the Sleeping Sorceress to hand for reasons I will go into right now. So, after the last show, friend of the show and now patron Simon Perrins, illustrator of our fabulous companions of Elric illustration and the wonderful Jerry Cornelius Diptych, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. He pointed out on Twitter that actually there was another version of um, the Eternal Champion which had yet a different list of names. So if you haven't listened to it, you should have listened to episode one, I'm sure, if you've tripped across this. But in the Eternal Champion, we had three different versions of a passage 
in the Mayflower edition, the Millennium edition, oh. and the um, the Galax edition. However, the original short story version of this, dating back, according to Mocock, to the late 50s, is actually published in the Elric Sleeping Sorceress volume for some reason. I don't really know why it's in there and not in the Eternal Champion volume that you've got. But here we go. Had I hung for an eternity in limbo? Was I alive? Dead? Was there a memory of a world which lay in the far past or the distant future? Of another world which seemed closer? And the names? Was I John Dacre or Erikos? Was I either of these? Many other names. Shalene. Artos. Brian. Umpata. Roland. Elanth. Ulysses. Alric fled away down the ghostly rivers of my memory. I hung in darkness, bodiless. A man spoke. Where was he? I tried to look, but had no eyes to see. So, a whole different wow. list of names. Yes. But of course, predating most of Mocock's inventions. So another example of, we now have three different versions of the novel and the short story, four different versions of that introduction and four different lists of names, which is constantly revised as he's gone along. And we'll see another example of that when we get further into it. Now, this version of The Eternal Champion, the short story, is only about 60-odd pages. Um, and we won't go into it now, but I think after we've done part three, maybe as a little extra, we will each read it and come back and do a little 15 to 20 minutes talking about the short story for the patrons, perhaps. Okay. But we'll do that later. So I can now put Elric, the sleeping sorceress, to one side because we've covered that. Chapter 10. The First Sight of the Eldrin. So we get a nice, fairly typical Mocock description of the diverse fleet of mankind, which um, I've recorded, or I will record. I'm going to say I've recorded because people are listening, but I'll say to you, I will record that little passage as the intro to the episode, because it's quite nice. Well, so they've been at sea a month, Yep. and it seems to have passed quite smoothly, whether mostly in their favour. Yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a nice little passage. And uh, to, to reflect Elric's feelings, and he says, Yet I still felt the need to know more of the Eldren. My cloudy memory of the life of an earlier Erikos could only conjure an impression of confused battles against them, and also, perhaps, somewhere a feeling of emotional pain. That was all. I had heard that they had no orbs to their eyes, and that this was their chief distinguishing non-human characteristic. They were said to be inhumanly beautiful, inhumanly merciless, and with inhuman sexual appetites. They were slightly taller than the average man, had long heads with high cheekbones and slightly slanting eyes. But this was not really enough for me. There were no pictures of Eldrin anywhere on the two continents. Pictures were supposed to bring bad luck, particularly if the evil eyes of the Eldrin were depicted. Now that's, that's an interesting description that because thinking back to the Dream of City episode that we did with Lars, which was the very first appearance of Elric, there's absolutely no mention whatsoever of him being anything other than a bloke. An albino, certainly, mm. but a bloke. Um, however, over subsequent years, that description of Elric starts to entail high cheekbones, tapered eyes, tapered ears, taller than a, a human. So, uh, you know, what what in, in normal fantasy fiction would probably be elven features, mm. probably. So we now have a description of the Eldrin here, which to some degree matches the latter descriptions of Melanobonians, but also... The descriptions of the Varach, who we've not come across on the podcast yet because we haven't covered Coram yet. Mm. 
Ah, so Corum, the Eldren, and the Malnibonians already seem to have some common features. Mm. Right. Interesting. So, the fleet sails on, drilling and preparing engagement plans and contingencies. And meanwhile, Erikos and Katon avoid each other for the most part. But the Eternal Champion does bond a little bit with Count Roldero of Stalako. I like Voldero. Yeah, um, Roldero, 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 here we go. It's, a, it's pronunciation bingo again. Roldero. Roldero, we'll stick with Roldero. He's, he's... Takes me as a northerner. Yeah, and... Although he kind of, Roldero suggests that maybe he's, I don't know, Mediterranean or Hispanic. But to some degree, he has the same um, pragmatic outlook to Caton. When he's in conversation with Erikos, he's very very practical, very pragmatic, very um, grounded in his opinions on things. He's just not a knobhead, (laughs) whereas Caton is. Yeah, but he also, they do have much deeper conversations. He's a very intelligent man. But he doesn't... I get the impression he doesn't suffer fools gladly. Yeah. And they have, they have a lot of uh, good conversations. And uh, Erikos' thoughts of Roldero go something like this. I took a liking to Count Roldero of Stalico, though he was perhaps the most bloodthirsty of all when it came to discussing the Eldren. John Dacre would have called him a reactionary, but he would have liked him. He was a staunch, stoical, honest man who spoke his mind and allowed others to speak theirs, expecting the same tolerance from them as he gave. When I had once suggested to him that he saw things too plainly in black and white, he smiled wearily and replied, Erikos, my friend, when you've seen what I have of the events that have taken place in my lifetime on this planet of ours, then you will see things quite as clearly in black and white as I do. You can only judge people by their actions, not by their protestations. People act for good, or they act for ill, and those who do great ill are bad. Those who do great good, they are good. But people may do great good accidentally, though with evil intentions. And conversely, people may do great evil, though having the best of intentions. I said, amused by his assumptions that he had lived longer and seen more than I had, though I think his assumption was meant in jest. So, Roldero, he liked Roldero, and um, it's not unusual for... Mocock characters to come across someone similar to that. You've got um, oh, a Smeorgan bald head who pops up in uh, in a couple of Elric stories, who were kind of reactionary, mercenary, almost burnt out, cynical types, who nevertheless he likes. And I do sometimes wonder if Mocock knew people like that in London in the sixties, who we enjoyed getting pissed with in pubs, who we disagreed with their politics, but nevertheless couldn't help but like them. But you can understand why he'd want to find somebody to be able to, because he has a very mixed up, screwed up life. Yeah. We know in the first part that we did, he didn't know if he was having hallucinations, if he was schizophrenic. Mm. And, you know, going through the life that he does, he knows it's absolutely bombed out. Yeah, yeah. It's... So having somebody to almost ground him. Yeah, and I think it's uh, he, he certainly needed it because he's not going to get it off Katon and Ragnar- King Ragnaros is a bit of a knob. He really is. He's a slab of gammon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they, they continue to debate the rationale of each side to pursue genocide and they get drunk, which is, you know, a general night down the pub. The problem is Erikos reveals that he's been blazing through his stock of wine in his attempts to get to sleep and try and avoid <laughs> dreaming. Um, and that night he does dream again. But we won't get into that. Because there's a lot of dreams going on. There's a lot of dreams. Yeah. 
And another month passes, and finally the site sells, and a few... There are a few sales at first, and then many, and they realise it's the Eldrin fleet. So, Katon and King Ragnos immediately start getting high on conversations about Eldrin sorcery. And Katon gets some digs in, as usual, against uh, Erikos, because Erikos is of some sorcerous origin. But Erikos is completely unconvinced and quizzes them for hard evidence on the sorcery of the Eldrin, which is quite amusing. I shrugged. Let us wait then, I said, and see their sorcery. King Ragnos called up at the lookout. How big's the fleet you see? About half our size, my liege, he shouted back, his words distorted by the megaphone. Certainly no larger. I think it is their whole fleet. I see no more coming. They do not seem to be drawing any closer at this moment, I murmured to King Ragnos. Ask him if they're moving. Has the Eldrin fleet hove too, Master Lookout, called King Ragnos. Aye, my liege. It no longer speeds hither, and they seem to be failing their sails. They are waiting for us, Caton muttered. They want us to attack. Well, we shall wait too. I nodded. That is the strategy we agreed. So they hang fast, and that is their plan. But the Eldrum fleet holds position as well. Erikos' plan to allow them to make the first move stands, although Caton, as time goes by, is busting more and more for a scrap. But it doesn't come just yet. But it's funny, isn't it? Because all the way through, Erikos says he's got a good battle brain. Yeah. But it's the the knobhead in him, Caton, that wants to do battle. Yeah. But he also sees the reason to stay and follow the battle plan. Yeah, and it's it's mentioned later on that Erikos kind of respects Caton's his nose for battle and tactics. Yes. Um, Which is... There is a point further on where he really regrets not having Caton around because he's surrounded by... by Yes, he does. ...dicks. Um, So he does have that grudging respect for Caton. But we move on to chapter 11. The fleet's engaged. So for another day and night, the fleets hold their nerves. And on the second night, Erikos dreams once again. And here we go. Let's read through this together, Phil. Because I suspect... We may have some differences. And the dreams, if anything, were worse than ever. I saw entire worlds at war destroying themselves in senseless battles. I saw Earth, but this was an Earth without a moon, an Earth which did not rotate, which was half in sunlight, half in a darkness, relieved only by the stars. And there was strife here too, and a morbid quest that as good as destroyed me. A name, Clavis? Clavis? Something of the sort. I grasped at these names, but they always eluded me, and, I suppose, they were really the least important parts of the dreams. I saw Earth, a different Earth again, an Earth which was so old that even the seas had begun to dry up, and I rode across a murky landscape beneath a tiny sun, and I thought about time. I tried to hang on to this dream, this hallucination, this memory, whatever it was. I thought there might be a clue here to what I was. Where had it all begun? Another name, the Cronarch. Then it faded. There seemed to be no extra significance to this dream than to the rest. Then this dream had faded, and I stood in a city beside a large car, and I was laughing, and there was a strange sort of gun in my hand, and bombs were raining from planes and destroying the city. I tasted an Upman cigar. So that's another reference to an Upman cigar. This is a little bit more um, straightforward, this one, though. He's remembering being Jerry Cornelius. The strange gun in his hand is Jerry's con- um, needle gun. Mm-hmm. The large car is Jerry's Dusenberg. I woke up, but almost as one, almost at once, dragged back into my dreams. I walked insane and lonely through corridors of steel, 
and beyond the walls of the corridors was empty space. Earth was far behind. The steel machine in which I paced was heading for another star. I was tormented. I was obsessed with thoughts of my family. John Dacre? No. John. And then, as if to confuse me further, the names began. I saw them. I heard them. They were spelled in many different forms of hieroglyphics, chanted in many tongues. Orbeck. Byzantium. Cornelius. Colvin. Bradbury. London. Melnibone. Hawkmoon. Langis Leho. Powys. Marker. Elric. Muldoon. Dietrich. Arflane. Simon. Cain. Allard. Coram. Person. Ryan. Asquinal. Pepan. Suet. Menel. Tallow. Holner. Colne. Carnelian. Bastable. The names went on and on and on. Two differences. Two differences. What we got? After Cain, I've got Beg. Yep. And then ah, Coram. Of course, yep, Seaton Beg. And then at the end, I've got an extra one, Von Beck. Von Beck. Right, yeah. So even though Von Beck dates from the 80s and this Millennium Edition is from the 90s, once again, he's gone back there and revised the names. So what was in the Mayflower Edition, I wonder? Let's, let's nerd this out. So the Mayflower Edition, we have Orbeck, Byzantium, Cornelius, Colvin, Bradbury, London, Mel... Oh, actually, almost the same as the Millennium Edition, with the Millennium Edition just adding a couple. Adding Carnelian, for example, and Bastable. So it seems very much that... Have they got Beg? Or... No. Oh. No, Beg is very much a, 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 a latter-day Mohawk um, edition. And Von Beck. Yeah, and Von Beck's not on it either. Um, because this Mayfrail edition predates the Von Beck books. Oh, right, OK. But it's, it's interesting that um, the Warlord of the Air dates from the late 60s, which was the first Oswald Bastable book. But it took... Mocock until the 90s to start to make the suggestion that Bastable was an aspect of the Eternal Champion 2 which reflects how as as he's gone along there were times when he tried to keep certain things separate from his Eternal Champion sequence and I think the Warlord of the Air at that point he was trying to keep as a standalone series but over time he just couldn't resist drawing that in too <laughs> yeah which is, you know, fair enough. I mean, we haven't got to the Oswald Bastable books yet, but they are amazing, and I love them. I don't think I've read them. Um, yeah, you, you did a lot of the Millennium Editions at the time. I'm not sure whether you got to the World Out of the Air. No, I'm not. Yeah. Anyway, so he has his big dream, and when he works, the Elden fleet is on the move. We get some textbook Mocock battle descriptions. Erikos has set a trap, and the Elden fleet sleek silver affairs that skip over the waves rather than sail through them. Very swish, kind of like silver catamarans, and they sail right through straight into the net and get boxed in. Can I just say I was a bit disappointed that he woke up screaming, yep. and before he had time to reflect on all of this that had been going on, they called him and said... Time for a fight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, no, I want to know his views on it. <laughs> yeah. Now he's been, around, he's been awake in this body for some... Yeah bit longer yeah what his views was but mm. i was a little bit oh yeah well i think there's more of it to come yeah but at that point i was like oh yeah oh of course of course the battle started yeah and of course this is mocock so everything's kind of written quite sparely it won't go into anything in any great level of detail um and i think we did comment in 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 the first episode that erica's only appears in 
two novels and a handful of short stories and a graphic novel. But actually, I remembered since then that the sequel to this, The Silver Warriors, as it's known in the US, or um, Phoenix in Obsidian, as it's known everywhere else, um, is not Erikos. He's Alex Scarson. But we'll get to that in due time. So he's, not, so he's only in one novel and, some, and, and uh, a handful of Elric short stories and a little bit of a Hawkman story. Yeah. Anyway, so fight on. Fight on. The skies were filled with smoke and the seas with flaming wreckage and the air was populated by screams, yells and washouts. The whine of Eldrin fireballs, the roar of our own shot, the shattering bellows of the cannon. My face was covered by a film of grease and ash from the smoke and I sweated in the heat from the flames. From time to time I caught a glimpse of a tense Eldrin face and I wondered at their beauty and feared perhaps we had been overconfident in our assumption of our victory. They were clad in light armour and moved about their ships as gracefully as trained dancers, and their silver cannon did not once pause in their bombardment of our craft. Wherever the fireballs landed, the decks or rigging became instantly alight with a shrieking, all-consuming flame that burned green and blue and seemed to devour metal as easily as it did wood. I thought a Game of Thrones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what? George R. R. Martin owes a fuck of a lot. <laughs> To Michael Moorcock. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, the Battle of the Blackwater Bay, whatever it is. Um, the Blackwater Bay, it was, yeah, wasn't Blackwater it? Yeah, Blackwater Bay, yeah. I gripped the rail of the foredeck and leaned forward, trying to peer through the stinging smoke. All at once, I saw an Eldrin ship side on immediately ahead of us. Prepare to ram, I yelled. Prepare to ram. So, the fight's on, and uh, things go... He goes straight into champion mode, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Straight into a warrior. Now, Ragnos is elated at the slaughter and Caton is triumphant of his praise, of Erikos' victorious tactics and the sea is now littered with Eldrin dead. After they ram this ship and the bear down on this craft. On either side of our flagship, I saw the two halves of the enemy ship rear in the water and begin to go down. The horror on my own face seemed matched by that on the Eldrin commanders as he fiercely strove to hold himself erect on his sloping poop deck, while his men threw up their arms and leapt into the dark, surging sea that was already full of smashed timbers and drifting corpses. Swiftly now the sea swallowed the Eldrin ship, and I heard King Ragnos laughing behind me as the Eldrin drowned. I turned, his face was smeared by soot and his red-rimmed eyes stared wildly out of his haggard skull. The helmet crown of iron and diamonds was askew on his head as he continued to laugh, in his morbid triumph. Good work, Erikos. The most satisfying method of all when dealing with these creatures. Break them open. Send them to the depths of the ocean so they can be that much closer to their master, the Lord of Hell. Caton climbed up. His first two was exultant. I'll give you that, Lord Erikos. You have proved you know how to kill Eldrin. But Erikos is a little bit... Disgusting. Yeah, he's... he's, he's uh, Erikos is so fucking two-faced and two-sided, isn't he? Yeah. Because he keeps getting sucked into the jingoism and the love of the battle. Then as soon as he's killing people, he's, he's like, oh, you know, I'm not really into it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And he's, 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 uh... Funny that he said, and we'll come back to this later on, to take your words, how he said, I think we'd underestimated them yeah. by how they were battling, how they were manoeuvring. Yeah. And- Obviously, it was a very different way to them. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, we'll come back to Erikos's plan, and and how and how that goes. But at the moment, everything's going swimmingly, yeah. and they all think he's the bee's knees. And the human fleet continues to hunt down Eldrin ships, which are now been separated into smaller groups. 
boarding some and slaughtering the crews. Well, the next chapter, the Islander continues to run down Eldrin ships before Ragnos spots the Eldrin flagship. And Ragnos and Kerton are salivating at the opportunity to seize the flagship and dispose of the Eldrin leader. The Islander pulls alongside, grapples the flagship and preparing for boarding, Erikos is consumed by the moment. And this is another example of, he, he kind of, he expresses disappointment, occasional disgust, a dislike of Kerton and Ragnos. But the moment he gets an opportunity to, uh, to large it up, he just can't resist himself. I think the others were disappointed as well. They were hoping that the prince was going to be on this. Yeah. They've got the Eldrin craft bound to one with, with grapples. And at this point, it says, And that same smile of triumph began to cross my face. I had the sweet taste of victory on my lips. It was the sweetest taste of all. I, Erikos, signed for a slave to run forward and wipe my face with a damp cloth. Yeah. I drew myself up proudly on my deck. Just behind me was King Ragnos on my right. On my left was Kerton. I felt a comradeship with them suddenly. I looked proudly down on the Eldrin deck. The warriors looked exhausted, but they stood ready with arrows strung on bows, with swords clenched in white fists and shields raised. They watched us silently. They did not attempt to cut the ropes. They waited for us to make the first move. So that duality in Elric, is it John Dacre who, who, who has that disgust and, and disappointment in death and killing and, and dislikes Caton and Ragnos's um, lust for, for killing and death? And then Erikos kicks in and becomes... The warrior. The warrior, the jingoistic pride in humanity and all that business. And this gets repeated quite a lot. It does. Things go a little bit pear-shaped, though, because Ragnos calls for Parley with the Eldrin commander who turns out to be Duke Bernan. But he does the dirty. So having Bernan agree... Bernan, but Duke Bernan at this point lets them know that Prince Arjaz, who they hoped would be on board, the leader of the Eldrin, he gives away that he's, he's actually not. Um, but he does agree, whilst Erikos, Kerton and Ragnos are arguing about what to do next. He agrees to fight Erikos in one-to-one combat. But Ragnos does the dirty and just has Kerton shoot him whilst they're under parley conditions. But Erikos did hear that and yeah. he's all for it because he yeah. likes a duel. He likes to yeah. fight one-on-one. Yeah. So Erikos is super fucked off with his betrayal. Yeah. Um, but by this point, the Eldrin have opened fire in return and so he leaps into action, Errol Flynn style, says, you know, death to the hounds of hell. And then once again, Erikos kicks in. But Caton had already fired a bolt into yeah. the Baron's neck. Yeah, so Caton's just executed yeah. um, Duke Bernard. Whilst he's as- agreeing to a duel. Yeah. So he, uh, he, he does his Errol Flynn and he discovers the power of the sword Kanayana. Um, so that's the slaughter I in the Eldrin. I thought Kanajana. Kanajana. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Ka- Kanana Um So the Eldrin are slaughtered, effectively... Katon pulls down the Eldrin standard and tramples it into a bloody puddle. And Erikos realises that the, the true power of Kanayana is he only needs to cut somebody even slightly and the radiation kills them. Once again, a lot of similarity with the sword Stormbringer because Erikos doesn't need to strike a killing blow. No. Just as Elric doesn't need to strike a killing blow with Stormbringer, but it's just, it's just enough to open the wound. And Stormbringer sucks the soul out. Kanayana kills them with radiation. So some similarities there again with these black swords. And once again, we get that point where once it's all over... I think what 
also added to that is that Keaton goes down below deck and he comes back exuberant because he says he's also killed the Duke's daughter. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's actually deeply unpleasant, isn't yeah. it? Keaton goes below, comes back, says, ha, 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 ha. Um, his daughter was on board. Is she alive? Not anymore. And it's uh, it's deeply unpleasant. So Keaton sinks a little bit, in my estimation, there. Yeah. He's got a lot further to go as well. Now that the flagship was ours, the day was won. Not a single prisoner would be taken. In the distance, the victorious human warriors were busy firing the Eldrin vessels. There seemed to be no Eldrin shifts left uncaptured, none fleeing over the horizon. Many of our own ships had been destroyed or were sinking in flames. Both sides' crafts were stretched across a vast expanse of water, and the ocean itself was covered by so great and thick a carpet of wreckage and corpses that it seemed as if the remaining ships were embedded in it. I, for one, felt trapped by it. I wanted to leave this scene as soon as possible. The smell of the dead choked me. This was not the battle I had expected to fight. This was not the glory I had hoped to win. Caton re-emerged with a look of satisfaction on his face. You're empty-handed, I said. Why so pleased? He wiped his lips. Duke Bernard had his daughter with him. Is she still alive? Not now. I shuddered. So, again, you know what? Pick your fucking poison, Ericos. Yeah. You know? Well, he'd gone down looking to loot, get the treasures. Yeah. And he was happy that his treasure was to kill yeah. the Duke's daughter. And I think at this point, you have to think back. Stuff like this is par for the course now with stuff like Game of Thrones and George Martin, murder of children. Yeah. You know, um, young girls, the hound doing what the hound does. But, but in 1968, 67, in fantasy fiction, this is hard stuff. This is quite hardcore stuff. Mm. And it only gets more hardcore. Yeah. Doesn't it? Chapter 13. Yeah. So, the remaining Eldrin vessels afloat are fired and sunk whilst Erikos gets maudlin and a bit self-pitying as he watches the flagship sink. And there's this... (laughs) There's this bit where it says, I thought of the Eldrin Duke, I thought of his daughter, and something in me envied them. They would know eternal peace, just as it seemed I should know nothing but eternal strife. What you're, a knob. You feel like going, oh, poor you. <laughs> yeah, what an absolute knob. So, he's, you know, all, all this is, and it only gets worse. All this is going on, and he has this maudlin, self-pitying... And I think this this is like a blend of John Dacre and Erikos now. Their personalities are starting to merge. Because Erikos of old, the champion that he now inhabits, wouldn't have probably entertained these thoughts. He would have been just as big a bastard as Caton and Ragnos. So he's recognising how shit all of this is. But he's not doing anything about it. He's just pitying himself in the same way that John Dacre would lay in bed at four o'clock in the morning, pitying his existence, fantasising about being something different. <laughs> you know? And then he gets his wish. Yeah. Good luck. And it's, it's, like, it's like weird circular thinking and, em- and emotional thinking. And uh, it makes me wonder, and I will continue to wonder it as we get into the subsequent chapters... It makes me wonder how much of this is extraordinarily clever psychological character building by Moorcock and how much of it is interpretation on my part, interpreting <laughs> something which actually could be described as, as at times challenging and pretty gross. But that's the great thing about reading. That's the great thing about fiction, isn't it? 
And everyone can view it very differently. Yeah. It's your own take on yeah. it. Yeah. And I'm sure every time I've read this, I've viewed it completely differently. But it's 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 I wonder if it's a different critique because yeah. of the podcast. Yeah, well yeah, I, th- I think normally I would read this and I would have these thoughts fleetingly. But of course, now that we're actually doing this as a discussion and we're we're reading these things and thinking about them a little bit more deeply. And of course, now I'm in my late forties and I view the world very differently than I did when I was probably seventeen or sixteen when I first read this. It's uh it's an interesting experience. Because I mean, you know, we'll talk about this in more detail later, I'm sure, but there was a time when I probably viewed the Eternal Champion, the novel, as one of the weaker hmm. Mocock entries into this. Although I do recall you saying it was one of your favourites at yeah. the time when you read them all. But now I'm at the point where and I still again there's there's still that part in my brain where I'm thinking, how much of this is Mocock being an outstanding writer of characterization when it's related to horrific events? And how much of how much am I applying that to my reading of it? Mm. And I don't suppose we'll ever get the answer. But anyway. Chapter thirteen, Paphanel. So the triumphant fleet sails on. Erikos is unhappy with Ragnos and Caton, but his spirits are lifted somewhat by a visit from Roldoro, who contends that Ragnos' actions, the, the betrayal, were actually tactically sound. Tactically sound at least. Mm. So Elric asks him. Would you have done the same, Roldero? Roldero says, oh, I expect so. War, after all. But Bernan was prepared to fight me. He must have known his chances were slim. He must have known, too, that Ragnos could not be trusted to keep his word. If he did, Roldero said, then he would have acted as Ragnos acted. It was just that Ragnos was quicker. Merely tactics, you see. The trick is to gauge the exact moment to be treacherous. Bernan did not look like one who would have acted treacherously. Oh, he was probably a very kind man and treated his family well. I told you, Erikos, it's not Bernan's character I dispute. I just say that, as a warrior, he would have tried what Ragnos succeeded in doing, eliminating the enemy's chief. It's one of the basic principles of warfare. Do you say so, Roldero? I do say so. Now drink up. So, again, Roldero is being... is his foil for... Whenever Erikos is thinking, this is really, really shit, Roldero's just mm-hmm. getting pissed with him and saying, you know what, just deal with it. This is just the way things go. Well, is is a is a battle is a warrior, isn't he? Yeah, an out and out warrior. Yeah, and he's he's, he's battle hardened and quite cynical, yes. and and that that fits with what Ericos needs to salve his conscience. Yes, very much so. So the fleet arrives at Paphanal, a city of incredible artistry and beauty. Ericos leads the marshaled forces in to find that all the men had been killed at sea, and only women and children remained in the city, and it's effectively. Undefended. Now, chapter 14, Ermazad. I think this is one of Mocock's... On, on rereading it, I think this is one of Mocock's darkest chapters that I've read in any of his fantasy. It's very, very grim, yeah. I have to say. And lots and lots of his stories have battles, deaths of worlds, terrible events. But And, and in you know in the Heartmoon books, for example, Julian Skull, there's, there's descri- it talks about... The Grand Britannians um, crucifying children, but it's it's always um, distant and implied. But if you go back to the first nine chapters that we did, yeah, he did say King Ragnos that he wanted to wipe them yeah, out. That's right. So he's not doing anything underhand that he hasn't. 
brought to the table before. Yeah, but but once again, it's it's like it's it's still implied at that point, isn't it? Just like in, it's interesting rereading Jewel in the School with Natasha. Um, I'd forgotten that there's a mention that Hawkmoon, by the time he's captured after his rebellion, had won the trust of the Grand Britannians by being a mercenary captain and doing their bidding. So there's 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 a brief paragraph that suggests that Hawkmoon. By implication, it's not openly stated, but it's suggested by implication that Hawkmoon has done horrendous things in service of the Dark Empire in order to ingratiate himself with them, to give the opportunity for him to turn, to turn on them and try and win back the city of Colm. Mm. But again, it's implied. Whereas here, we've got descriptions of Erikos getting drunk to try and drown out the sounds of children being slaughtered next door. Yeah. And it's another example of... While they're doing these terrible things, he gets drunk to drown it out and pathetically and hand-wringingly reflects on his own impotence to stop it. And it's 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 really dark. Um, so, you know what? He could stop it. Yeah, it's like, why? Why can't you stop it? And this comes back a little bit later on as well. That's a really good question. Yeah. Why doesn't he stop it? Yeah, so, so, so let's get into this a little bit. I did not know how they slew the children. I begged Ragnos not to give the order. I pleaded with Kerton to spare them, to drive them from the city if he must, but not to kill them. But the children were slain. I do not know how many. We had taken over the palace which had belonged to Duke Bernard himself. He had, it transpired, been warden of Paffernal. I shut myself in my quarters while the slaughter went on outside. I reflected sardonically that for all their talk of Eldrin filth, they did not seem to mind forcing their attentions on the Eldrin women. There was nothing I could do. I did not even know if there was anything I should do. I had been brought here by Ragnos to fight for humanity. Not to judge it. I had agreed to answer his summons after all, doubtless with reason. But I had forgotten any reason. I sat in a room that was exquisitely furnished with delicate furniture and fine light tapestries on walls and floor. I looked at the Eldrin craftsmanship and I sipped the aromatic Eldrin wine and I tried not to listen to the cries of the Eldrin children as they were butchered in their beds in the houses in the streets beyond the thin palace walls. I looked at Kanayana, which I'd propped in a corner, and I hated the poison thing. I'd stripped myself of my armour, and I sat alone, and I drank more wine. Poor yeah, you. And th- this is our protagonist. Mm. It's actually quite a tough read, I think, at this point. Um, and I, I, I don't remember how I felt when I read it when I was 16 or 17. Um, you know, when I was reading Sven Hassel novels, mm. every other book that I read. But this is this is actually a tough read. And it comes across as a real... You know what, it's, it's really fascinating reading this right now when we're at the point where I think it's... Is it the 20th anniversary of the massacres in Srebrenica? In Bosnia? Where, during the breakup of Yugoslavia, entire villages were, in inverted commas, ethnically cleansed by people who only weeks or months before had just been fellow citizens of Yugoslavia. Mm. And how many people were there who were aware of this going on, but inverted commas felt powerless to stop it because it was beyond their sphere of influence. That's the point at which massacres happen Mm. because people don't do what they can to stop them. 
they turn a blind eye. Yeah, um, and I, I know it's, it's probably a little bit um, heavy and political for this podcast, but th- that's what I instantly thought about when I was reading this. Um, and again, it's I don't think Moorcock's pulling any punches when not only does he depict the disgraceful results of warfare, but also how someone who, on one level, could be viewed as a heroic protagonist actually downright fails in their responsibility to, you know, people. Mm. Um, But, of course, the Eldren are tagged as other and not human. So... Is, is kind of got this dual excuse, and it's 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 really quite shocking. And once again, reading this in 1968, I think this would be a tough read. Mm. Or maybe I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe people were more inured to these things back then because it was still quite close proximity to the war. But um, reading it now, it's it, it took me aback a little bit when I read it again because I thought that I knew Mocock back to front. But this this is actually one of the toughest bits of of Mocock I've read in quite probably ever. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything else in any of his other books that comes close. But, anyway. So eventually he's called to the main hall to join the king and all the captains, and they're all completely shit-faced. Ragnos in particular. Ragnos is utterly wankered. So once again, he's sitting there. He can't get drunk, because he just doesn't seem to be able to get drunk, because he's some kind of, you know, powerful immortal or whatever, um, which Ragnos kind of regularly ribs him about. Um, so he's looking up, he's looking down his nose at them all, again. And eventually Caton arrives with a captive Eldrin woman, who we learn is Ermajad of the Ghost Worlds, sister of Prince Arjaz, the Eldrin leader, and they decide to keep her hostage. Now, she ends up in Erikos' charge, but even then, it's through no inter- intervention on his part. It's purely because he's not as drunk as the rest yeah, of them. Ragnos suggests it. Yeah. You know, and at first, Caton isn't really particularly impressed by it. But, you know, that's that's what happens. Yeah, because they encourage him to go out raping. Well... Go, go and enjoy the rest of your spoils. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm going to read this out because, again, it's 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 a, a particularly despicable turn of phrase from Erikos. So Ragnar says, Erikos, who cannot get drunk, she shall be put in your charge, champion. I nodded. I accept the charge, I said. I pitied the girl, whatever terrible crimes she'd committed. Caton looked at me suspiciously. Do not worry, Lord Caton, I said. Do as the king says. Continue to enjoy yourself. Slay some more. Rape some more. There must be plenty left. Yeah, Yeah, you're not covering yourself in glory here, Erikos. You can't understand where he's coming from at all. Yeah. Roldro's there and he, he gives a slight smile and says... And at this point, Ragnos has tried to stand up and just fell over with a crash to the floor because he's absolutely wankered. And he says, our liege is not himself, but Caton is right. The elder and bitch will be useful to us. He's thinking purely as a batter into... Yeah, this 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 is all completely tactical. Yeah. So, Ragnos is comatose by this point, and as they pick him up, Erikos quizzes Roldero regarding the ghost worlds, which Ermajad has described as Ermajad of the ghost worlds. And with some reluctance, Roldero tries to explain. He's obviously a very suspicious warrior, isn't he? Yeah. He doesn't like to talk about it. Yeah. What are these worlds? I asked impatiently. Roldero licked his lips. They are the worlds to which human sorcerers sometimes go in search of alien wisdom 
and from which there draw helpers of horrible powers and disgusting deeds. It is said that within those worlds an initiate may meet his long-slain comrades, who may sometimes help him, his dead loves and his dead kin, and particularly his enemies, those whom he has caused to die, malevolent enemies with great powers, or wretches who are half-souled and incompetent. His whispers words convinced me, perhaps because I had drunk so much. Was it these ghost worlds that were the origin of my strange dreams? I wanted to know more. But Rodero's not really got a great deal more to tell him other than, you know, oh, sorcery, you know, this, that and the other. So he, he doesn't really uh, get much more. But Erico's similarly isn't convinced by the rumours that Amajab mates with ghouls, etc. from the ghost worlds. And after putting the king to bed, Roldero tries to... He does try to uh, reassure Erikos. Yeah, I'd put Roldero gives kind words to Erikos, as he knows he struggles with the murder of children, the rape and murder of young people. Yeah, he struggles with it, but he doesn't do anything to intervene, which might be why he likes Roldero, because he kind of strokes his ego, really, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Makes him feel better for doing nothing. Yeah. We parted in the corridor outside the chamber. Count Roldero looked at me with some concern. These actions must be made, he said. It has befallen to us to be the instruments of a decision made some centuries ago. Do not bother yourself with matters of conscience. The future may see us as bloody-handed butchers, but we know we are not. We are men. We are warriors. And we are at war with those who would destroy us. So, Roldero once again gives him that little bit of reassurance. And he returns to... To his room. It's funny I wrote that bit down as well, actually. The future may see us as bloody-handed butchers. Well, yeah. you kind of are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there's, no ex- yeah. there's no excuse for killing no. of women and children. Yeah. So he gets back to his, his chambers and Amjad is on his bed. And um, once again, there's uh, a great example of how lame he is at this point. How are you? I asked inanely. Her lips parted, but she did not speak. I do not intend to harm you, I said weakly. I would have spared the children if I could. I would have spared the warriors in the battle. But I have only the power to lead men to kill each other. I have no power to save their lives. Oh, dude. Seriously? Really? Yeah, it's, it's so weak, isn't it? Yeah. And he knows it's weak as he's saying it. Yeah. And he, and he just comes across, across as hand-wringing and inadequate in the face of trying to justify it to a victim. But actually, the moment that his blood's up, he'll be banged back into it again. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this kind of stuff is, is like, really de rigueur now in, uh, in modern fantasy fiction, thanks to people like George Martin. But, you know, it's, I think at, at the time, this was probably quite strong. I think it's still quite strong now, but what makes it stronger is the duality of Erikos and John Dacre's disgust at how it's all going down. And that's what makes it quite strong stuff. So our protagonist is continually justifying his leadership of a genocidal war as destiny and cosmic fate Mm. and recuses himself from the things that bother him about it most deeply, yet is fully self-aware of how lame this appears when he's trying to justify it to a victim of it. It's strong stuff. Yeah. And it's 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 tough, but it's it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. It's thought provoking. Yeah. And discussion provoking. Yeah, absolutely. After he has a a pretty brief discussion with Amazad, when she actually lets on that she knows who he is, so they're aware of Erikos. 
With Pafanal secured, Eric and Roldero strategized and set out a plan to tackle the Outer Islands, which is the first time we've heard the Outer Islands mentioned by Roldero. Yep. And uh, the world's edge. Yeah, which sets up a, like like a, a typical Murkoch side quest. Mm. Um, and Roldero explains that the uh, the Outer Islands, what exactly they are. The Outer Islands lie in the gateway to the Ghost Worlds. Roldero said seriously. From there, the Eldren can summon their ghoulish allies. Perhaps now, Paphanal is taken, we should concentrate on smashing their strength in the West, at World's Edge. So, we now know that there's uh, this additional place of power for the yeah. Eldren, the World's Edge, the Outer Islands, where apparently they draw additional support from these ghost worlds, from ghouls and magic and sorcery and probably demons, and etc, etc. So they decide, and Katon agrees, and Ragnos agrees, that they should leave the bulk of their army at Paphanal to prepare for the inevitable counterattack from Prince Arjaz, whilst the fleet returns to Nunos to repair and restock. And they're all absolutely convinced that Erikos is right, that Prince Arjaz will counterattack Paphanal to take it back, because it's such a critical part. Yeah. strategic value and Katon will stay in charge of the defence of Paphanal while they go back restock will take Amajad with them Roldor will go with them and they can get more warriors as well yeah because they can only fill up the ships that they had yeah um, so they implement that plan and they return they head back to return to Nunos and at sea Erikos further observes what a petty dickhead Ragnos is because he has some fairly unpleasant um, digs uh, Amizad, calls her some deeply unpleasant names, mm. and uh, <laughs> I actually love this. After the last paragraph being quite a hard read, not not for because it was it was bad because it was thought provoking. Mm. We get some of his philosophical musings on the nature of love because yes. because Amizad <laughs> is really hot. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is, uh, which is really cool. Well, he, um, thinks quite that amusing. The, he thinks that her race are a beautiful yeah. race anyway. Yeah. He's, he's getting really, really pissed off with Ragnos. Um, but he says, I saw less of Amazad than I wished, but in spite of the king's warnings, came to like her. She was certainly the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Her beauty was different from the cool beauty of Islinda, my betrothed. Was it love? Even now... Now that the whole pattern of my particular destiny seemed to have been fulfilled, I did not know. Oh yes, I still loved Ayalinda, but I think that, while I did not know it, I was falling in love with Amishad too. <laughs> yeah, but she'd said She's like, only the second woman he's met since he arrived. Yeah, but, and also, she's only said two sentences to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's like, once again, it's that, um, it's the expectation of, of the powerful hero, isn't it? So he's got he's got the beautiful betrothed, coolly beautiful daughter of the king. And now he's got the princess, effectively, Amajad, the last surviving Eldrin survivor of the slaughter of Paphanal. And she's hot and aloof. And he's like, ooh, I think I might be falling in love with her too. Like, Dude, seriously, get a grip. Yeah, but also you'd think from her point of view, you've just killed all my all the women and children. Yeah. And okay, you might not have got your sword out and done it yourself. Yeah. You stood by while everybody else did. Yeah. I mean, and sadly for him, and not entirely unreasonably, for the first couple of weeks she doesn't talk to him. Yeah. At all, she won't acknowledge him. Because he's just continually fascinated by her. He's, he's basically just being a bit of a creep. He's watching her, but he makes some observations. He says, She had the long-pointed Eldrin face that John Dacre might have tried to describe as elfin. 
and failed to do justice to its nobility. She had the slanting eyes that seemed blind in their strange milkiness, the slightly pointed ears, the high angular cheekbones, and a slender body that was almost boyish. All the elder women were slender like this, small-breasted and narrow-waisted. Her lips were fairly wide, curving naturally upwards so that she always seemed to be on point of smiling when her face was in repose. For the first two weeks of our voyage, she continued to refuse to speak, although I showed her elaborate courtesy. <laughs> I saw that she had everything for her comfort and she thanked me through her guards. That was all. But one day, I stood outside the set of cabins where she, the king and myself, had our apartments leaning over the rail and looking at a grey sea and an overcast sky. And I saw her approach me. So finally, because he's been creeping on her for two weeks... She finally decides to actually talk to him, engages him in conversation. I just noted someone listening to you read, his beauty is a princess, and now so is uh, Irem. Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Has he got a thing about nobility? Well, I, I think apart from the fat, stupid wife <laughs> <laughs> from the last one, who, to be fair, was already taken... He's only met two birds. In Dudos, yeah. Yeah, he's only, he's, only met, he's only met two women, and the birth, act, the birth should happen to be nobility and princesses, so we can't really knock him for that. They're the only ones he's met. Mm. We can knock him for basically falling in love with anything in a dress that talks to him, or is anywhere near him at any given point. Who's single. Yeah. So anyway, the engaging conversation finally, and she's taking everything quite well considering. She's, uh, you know, she's, she's, she's pretty, uh, still remains pretty aloof. Um, but very polite. And the muse upon time, the history of the world and the origins of Erikos. And there's a little bit here, which is quite interesting. I thought at first, I said, that I came from your future, but now I'm not sure. Perhaps I come from your past. That this world is, in relation to what I call the 20th century, in the far future. This world is very ancient, she agreed. Is there a record of a time when only human beings occupied Earth? We have no such records, she smiled. There is an echo of a myth, the thread of a legend, which says there was a time when only the Eldren occupied Earth. My brother has studied this. I believe he knows more. I shivered. I did not know why, but my vitals seemed to chill within me. I could not easily continue the conversation, although I wanted to. But we don't know why he shivered. Yeah, but he's got... Subconscious memories of all sorts of other incarnations. Yeah, it? it's not that it was like yeah. there was no human. Yeah, because there's nothing to say all these incarnations are all human. Yeah, but what the, what there is is a commonality that whenever the eternal champion takes on the form of one of these other races, these non-human races, whether it be the Vadag in the Chronic the Quran Chronicles or Elric, um, what we do tend to find is that the Eldrin, the Melnibonians, the Vadak are the older races that end up getting displaced by man. Um, so that's quite a common quite a common theme, mm. even though you know some of the similarities between them do vary. Yeah. So, yeah, there are those similarities with the Young Kingdoms and um, the land of Lewim Anesh in Corn. Yeah. So, chapter 16, interestingly titled Confrontation with the King, what this could be about. But it kicks off. Erikos is dreaming again, this time of being summoned in under a, a, a different identity. I heard the voice calling, as it once called before to John Dacre, but this time it was not the voice of King Ragnaros. Erikos, the voice, was more musical. I saw green swaying forests and great green hills and glades and castles and delicate beasts whose names I did not know. Erikos. My name is not Erikos, I said. 
It is Prince Coram. Prince Coram. Prince Coram, hail and assy in the scarlet robe. I seek my people. Oh, where are my people? Why is there no cessation to this quest? I rode a horse. The horse was mantled in yellow velvet and hung about with panniers. Two spears, a plain round shield, a bow, a quiver holding arrows. I wore a conical silver helm and a double weight of chain mail, the lower layer of brass and the upper of silver, and I bore a long, strong sword that was not the sword, Kanayana. And it continues. Um, Strangely, they've changed the name of Prince Coram from the old version. That's right, yeah. In, in that one, it's Coram Bannon Fluran. Something like that. Yeah. So the, the original appearance of the name Coram, he changed later on when he wrote the Coram novels. Um, so Coram Bannon Fluran becomes Coram Halen Ersi. And there are a few other names there as well, aren't there? So Ericos, I am not Ericos. Ericos, I am John Dacre. Ericos, I am Jerry Cornelius. I am Conrad Arflin. We want your help, etc., etc., etc. I am Carl Glogauer. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it is. Do you yeah. know who that is? Oh, yeah. I'll get to Carl Glogauer in a second when I look at the, uh, the Mayflower one. I seek lost Tanalon. Tanalon. Yeah. So th- this is uh, this is quite cool because um, the second set of Coram novels, generally titled The Prince with a Silver Hand, Coram is called to the future in exactly the, way, the same the way that Ericos is called. So a king... And his people mm. reach out to Coram in his dreams and pull him in exactly the same way John Dacre is pulled over to be Ericos. So that's quite a nice little um, crossover and a nice little bit of symmetry with uh, the beginning of The Prince with a Silver Hand. But let's just have a quick look at the Mayflower edition. I think the rest of the names were the same when I had a look. It's page 99. Prince Coram. Prince Coram Bannon Fluran of the Scarlet Robe. So he's already got his Coram stuff, you know, pretty much developed. Um, and otherwise, the list of names is the same, but yeah, Carl Glogauer. So, Carl Glogauer is the main character from originally a short story called Behold the Man, which he then turned into a novel, in much the same way as he did with this. This originated as a short story, became a novel. Yeah. Essentially, the story of Carl Glogauer is that, um, and it's a little bit more complicated in the novel than it is in the book, in the short story, but Carl Glogauer is um, like a self-hating... Jewish man who's obsessed with the cross and older women who gets involved with a scientist who sends him back in time to witness the birth of Christ. Oh, right. And we won't say any more than that for the time being because um, what he gets up to and the events that transpire when he goes back to witness the birth of Christ, we will cover <laughs> when we cover Behold the Man because it's another example of a book Mark wrote back at the time that I think had it existed in any form other than pulp paperbacks, probably would have been quite controversial. <laughs> and I know when I read it back in the back in the day, I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is what you can't say that." All right, but we'll get to that one day. But that's Cal Glogower, and Cal Glogower also is the main character in Breakfast in the Ruins. There you go, um, where he spends time at Derry and Tom's roof garden. Yeah, mm, yeah, good stuff. So anyway, where were we? His dreams. Oh, yeah. So he's had his dreams. That bears a lot of similarity with the opening of the bull and the spear. Up on deck, Amazad, still looking off into the middle distance, all noble-like, and Erico's engages in conversation again. But it's Heru. Both times, it's Heru's initiate. Is it? Yeah. Uh, he just walks up going, <laughs> um, But Ragnos um, pops up again at this point and is, is pretty vile again. 
Well, they don't hear him come on deck. Yeah. They're having their conversation. They're having a conversation. And he says, that that is a difference I agreed. Who speaks of difference? A new harsher voice broke in. It was King Ragnos. He'd come silently out of his cabin and stood behind his feet apart on the swaying deck. He did not acknowledge Yamizad and stared directly at me. He did not look well. Greetings, sire, I said. We were discussing the meaning of words. You've become uncommonly friendly with the Eldron bitch, he sneered. What was it about this man who'd shown himself kind and brave in many ways, that when the Eldron were concerned he became an uncouth barbarian? That's one way of putting it. <laughs> sire, I said, for I could no longer be polite. Sire, you speak of one who, though our enemy, is of noble blood. Again he sneered. Noble blood, the vile stuff which flows in their polluted veins cannot be termed thus. Beware, Erikos. I realise that you are not altogether versed in our ways or our knowledge, that your memory is hazy, but remember that the Eldron Wanton has a tongue of liquid gold which can beguile you to your doom and ours. Pay no heed to her. There is, uh, at this point he starts to get a little bit threatening. She'll weave a spell that you'll be a fawning dog at her mercy and no good to any of us. I tell you, Erikos, beware. Gods, I'll have half a mind to give her to the rowers and let them have their way with her before she's thrown over the side. You placed her under my protection, my lord king, I said angrily, and I am sworn to protect her against all dangers. And it goes on. So this is the first indication that Ragnos and Erikos are starting to, um, the relationship is starting to fracture a little bit, and Erikos does... Despite the fact that he can deal, albeit drunkenly, with blocking out the deaths of potentially thousands of women and children, he will face down the king over Amajad because she's in front of him and she's real and she's a person. I wouldn't call it a confrontation. It was more of a a reminder, you've put her under my guard yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'm, they, they, they do have a bit of a dig at each other because the king actually says, is this treachery, Erikos? It was almost as if he hoped it were. And Erica says, No, King Ragnos, disagreement with a single representative of humanity does not co- constitute treachery to mankind. Because he's told Ragnos he's taken no lo- oath of loyalty to him. He's Erica the war champion, champion yeah, of humanity. But you feel at this point he's like stood on dirt, hands on hips. Yeah. I am Erica's champion right. of humanity. Yeah. Not champion of Ragnos. Yeah, well, that's, what, and that's why it's a confrontation. Because Rajanos is saying, you know, do as you told, and Erikos is saying, yeah, I'm Erikos, me, and this woman is under my protection. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So that's the first stage where we see their their relationship perhaps starting to fracture. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Rajanos sods off, and Erikos quizzes Amazad regarding the ghost worlds, but she's pretty vague, to be honest, and doesn't really give any satisfactory answers. Um, and at this stage, she 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 just seemed to be probably human in Erikos and no more. Although she's being pretty smart because she's initiating these conversations and um, as a self-preservation tactic, trying to get the slightly um, bipolar figure of, of Erica's on board mm. to, uh, to stick up for you. Ain't a bad idea. It's not a bad plan, is it? He was also, he was, he found it very humorous when the king called him dead Erica's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, watch yourself, dead Erikos. <laughs> right, chapter 17, the back at Necronal. So the fleet gets back. All the peeps at Necronal are cock-a-hoop at the victory. There's ticket tape parades, you know, all that good stuff. And Ragnos is still being a bit a bit grumpy, um, but seems to be a little bit more at ease now he's back at his, back on his, his home turf 
with uh, with his peeps, all all worshipping him. And Ericus has got some thoughts at this point that Ragnus might now consider him a threat to his power. Yeah, but as soon as he gets off the ship, the first thing they do is say, "I'm betrothed to your daughter." <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, they the, the finally spill the beans, don't they? Yeah. It's the uh, islander greets him, and they finally spill their betrothal to the king, who kind of half-heartedly, very half-heartedly, gives his assent because by this point, is is bit miffed with Ericus. But it's, it's, it's kind of wonderful. Well, you don't want to stay in the company. It's like, I'm very tired, I need to go to bed. Oh, yeah, I'm real knackered, I need to go. Yeah. Um, so Erica spends a little bit of time with uh, with Islinda down the back. The king announced our betrothal the next day, and the news was received with joy by the citizens of Necronel. We stood before them on the great balcony overlooking the city. We smiled and waved, but when we went inside again, the king left us with a curt word and hurried away. Mm. Father really does seem to disapprove of our match, Islander said in puzzlement, in spite of his consent. A disagreement about tactics while at war, I said. You know how important we soldiers think these things. He'll soon forget. But I was perturbed. Here was I, a great hero, loved by the people, (laughs) marrying the king's daughter as a hero should, and something was beginning to strike me as being not quite right. (laughs) No shit. I had had the feeling for some time, but I could not trace the source. I did not know whether it was to do with my peculiar dreams, my worries concerning my origin, or merely the crisis which seemed to be building between the king and myself. There again, I was still very weary, and probably my anxiety was baseless. I, Linda, and I now went to the bridal bed together, as was the custom in human kingdoms. But that first night, we did not make love. Again? Again? Yeah. It's like... There's no fire <laughs> to this relationship, is Well, no, they've even got, you can go to the bridal bed. Yeah. It is our custom. Yeah. This 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 relationship just isn't catching fire. No. Is it? Not at all. It's, it's, uh, I think we, we commented on how awkward it was uh, in, in the last show, but it's not getting any better. So, But she wakes him up in the middle of the night to ask him about Amazad. <laughs> oh, and this, this is absolutely brilliant because she's like, oh, what's she like? And it's like... Oh, I, I, don't know, I hadn't thought about her, really. And she says, well, isn't she an evil bitch who, like, swallows men's souls or something? He's like, no, she seems quite nice, really. <laughs> oh, by the way, your dad's a treacherous knobhead. <laughs> because he picks that point while, while I say, oh, yeah, I've not really thought about her at all. Um, with his fingers crossed behind his back. He picks that point to tell her about the treachery and the betrayal, and she, she's thinking, oh, yeah, what did they do? Is He's like, no, it was your dad. Your dad's a treacherous knobhead. So, oh... Ericos, you fair entangled dimwit. It's <laughs> your first night in bed with your wife. You're not doing the dirty. She's quizzing you about this woman who's been in your protection. You go, oh, she's quite nice, really. And your dad's a knobhead. And then you diss his, her dad. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it, he's such an awkward tool. But anyway, next day he meets Ragnos and Rolderon and they hear that Arjaz hasn't tried to retake Paffernal. Oh dear, what's gone wrong? He's landed a massive army just down the down the coast and is marching unopposed on Necronel. WTF? Yeah. Question mark, question mark, question mark. And why didn't he, this great leader and all these tactical men, yeah. think this? Yeah. Why were they... Nobody thought outside the box, it yeah. seems like. Yeah. So Erechos now looks like a massive Burke. The king's taken a dislike into him. His plan um, has, has come a serious cropper. And Necronel is largely undefended because the majority of their army is at Paffernal, 
They could scrape up a couple of divisions from elsewhere, but it'll take them a week to get there. Erikos does kind of think, right, okay, what, why why would Prince Arjas pursue this? Despite the fact it's obviously tactically a, a very smart move. Yeah, but you put yourself into his shoes. Yeah. Erikos, who has no feelings, he doesn't know anybody who was at Paffernal, yeah. f- didn't take it well when all those women and children were murdered. Yeah. Imagine Alan Prince took it. Yeah. What's the point of going back there? Yeah. Knowing that they'll be defending it, it makes sense to and me. And also they took his sister. And they took his sister. Yeah. So they're, they're feeling that Paffernal was of strategic importance because it's a port. Yeah. It's completely irrelevant to the Eldrin because he just wants his sister. And also it's a tactical masterstroke. Their army is, is two weeks away over the sea and they've just arrived with their fast fleet with an army that is now marching and opposed on the human capital. Yeah. Well. Good tactics. Well, this is it. And it's like, why didn't they even consider it? That Because they believe he's inhuman, so wouldn't have humans' thoughts. Yeah. But then they all, bar Erico's, they quite happily killed women and children. Yeah. So how human were their thoughts? Yeah. yeah. So um, Erico's is certainly guilty of believing his own press. Yes. Um, and thinking that everything would be hunky-dory, but he's, uh, he's he now looks like a massive tit. <laughs> yeah. So, but he tries to save face and gathers the available divisions, straps himself up in his armor. But somebody actually says it's not your fault. Oh yeah, Ragnos says, "Oh yes, yeah." Ragnos yeah. does try and make him feel a little bit better by saying it's not his fault. But you know, in actual fact, I'm not entirely convinced. But I thought they were all fist bumping again. Yeah. Uh, well, not now. It's, uh, it's it's all pretty bad. So they're still they're still talking about defending parts. So they send for the only large force that they have at Nunos to come over, but Nunos will then be undefended. And they f- finally, you know, strike on the fact that they've got Amazad as a bargaining chip. So Erikos straps himself up into his fancy armour, heads out to meet Arjaz to implement some kind of plan. <gasps> but that's the end of part two! So... That's where we're going to leave it for, for for today, and we'll be back for part three next time. Yes. I haven't even touched my old-fashioned. We've been too busy yakking, so I can now get this in my mush. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll see you next time. And, of course, by next time, I mean in about 30 seconds, after I lean over and turn all the recording gear <laughs> off. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks as always to Phil for being a great co-host and humouring me throughout the ongoing midlife crisis that prompted me to try podcasting. You may have noticed a change in audio quality, possibly for the worse. Since Covid lockdown commenced we both have home offices taking up a ridiculous amount of space and as a result we've had to be a bit more compact in terms of where we can set up. As a result of that, I've not been using my usual gear, but rather a Tascam DR40X that is so bloody sensitive it picks up every creak and rustle, and it seems to lack the warmth of the multiple Marantz mic setup that I normally use. That said, of course, it might all just sound crap. I am still a podding amateur, of course. And at some point, I'm sure Adobe Audition will suddenly reveal all of its secrets to me, rather than the 0.004% of it I can currently fathom. 
Thanks are also due to our mighty patrons, Tom, Norman, Fred, Matt, Malpertwee, Jim and David, and new patrons, Simon Perrins, artist and producer of the new show logo, our fab companions of Elric Peace, and the amazing Jerry Cornelius diptych I shared on the homepage a couple of weeks back. Also, thanks to my old mate Robbo. He joined the crew last week, so thanks for your support, dude. It's great to have you on board. An additional big shout-out goes out to Norman this month too for chucking in an extra bit of support. A great shot in the arm. Cheers, Norman. It really is appreciated and unexpected. And uh, I now need a new tier title just for you. So, I don't know, Lord of the Higher Worlds, Theocrat of Pantang, uh, Red Hot Chariot Dude. Um, We'll think of something. But for now, Mrs. House is on the move. So I'd better get cracking. I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. (laughs) 